to the Bank Talk Podcast, the show where we talk to leaders and experts from the community banking sector. Whether you are a current CEO or aspire to be one, this podcast will give you valuable insights and advice on how to run your financial institution better. Each episode features a different topic and a guest who shares their experience and knowledge with us. Tune in and learn something new with Bank Talk Podcast. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. A few months ago, I attended a session on subordinated debt. Uh, I was at a, uh, a conference for credit unions, pretty big, decent-sized regional conference at the time. I joined a session, and, and for those of you who have done a few of these before, you know some of these sessions you get a, a, an awful lot of people, and some you get almost none. And you really can't tell the difference in the quality of the session based on the, the number of attendees. But uh, there was a, a session on subordinated debt for credit unions, and the session was just entirely packed. So I thought I would get our friends at Piper Sandler together, see if they could explain to me why they felt uh, this was a hot topic. I was kind of under the impression that uh, subordinated debt in the bank space, at least in the short term, is was somewhat dead. But for some reason, this was a full room of uh, CEOs in the credit union space that seemed to have an awful lot of interest in it. So without further ado, let's get to Bank Talk. We'll talk to a couple experts and see if we can uh, shake the shake out what's uh, going on in the subordinated debt space on the credit union side. Okay, welcome back to Bank Talk. Today I have with me Derek Zott, uh, Managing Director at Piper Sandler. Derek, uh, thanks for joining me. Nice to be here. Uh, so, Derek, we prepped for this a little bit, but I attended a session, a uh, credit union session, that was sort of uh, focused on on subordinated debt. And I walked into the session. It was a you know a regional credit union meeting, and it was probably the best attended session I had found. And I, you know, in my head, I was thinking, you know. On the bank side, I thought subordinated debt, at least in the short term, was kind of a dead deal. Like there wasn't, you know, there's not nearly as much activity as there might be going on a while ago. I sat in on the session briefly on the credit union side, and I just, you know, a lot of the a lot of the session went over my head. So I was hoping that we could just spend a little bit of time today and just kind of talk about why subordinated debt on the credit union side would draw this many attendees. If you don't mind, could you just give me a little bit of background on maybe why this is a, a hotter topic than it might be in the bank space? Yeah, sure. I, it makes a lot of sense that seeing what you did was given that the rules for credit union sub debt were just put into effect uh, two years ago, so January of 2022. So for the credit union universe, it's a fairly new product. Since that point, a, a number of credit unions have availed themselves of it, but to a lot, it, it's still being discovered and, and understood. What does this mean? Uh, how do we utilize it? What is it for? Uh, how do we pay it back? All those questions. So not not surprising that folks had the, those questions, and regardless of whether they're going to issue or not, they want to learn more about it. When you say that uh, this sort of got re- or opened up for the first time in 2022, if I uh, reiterate that, is it fair to say that this is the first time that a credit union was able or a credit union of a certain size was able to issue subordinated debt? Like before it wasn't, before that time period, it wasn't really a thing? There were small issues, yeah, that's it, getting into the nuance of it. There were small issuances done prior to that, but they were done under a different set of rules. 
So what the uh, NCUA did was clarify how the capital is to be treated, how it's amortized, how it is paid back, and also the terms under which it was able to be issued. And and that that really cleared it up and for those folks so that there was a clear path as to what to do. Prior to that, it was more one-offs, small issuances here and there. But these rules set the terms and and folks have, have followed since. And every deal after that, those deals in January have looked the same. Okay. And if you wouldn't mind, maybe I should have done this, done this at the beginning. But when I think of subordinated debt, I think of I think of debt issued against an institution. When when you talk about subordinated debt on the credit union side, give me a feel for the instrument and who might purchase the debt. Right? You know, give me give me an uh, maybe a better feel for what I'd call the uh, I don't want to say the infrastructure, maybe the the ecosystem. I would say the structure is the right word. And what the NCAA tried to do was to create an instrument. So we had several conversations, us as a firm, prior to the new rules coming out, asking us, how, because they knew we did a lot of bank debt, uh, what does it look like? What should it look like on the credit union side to get investors interested? We want an instrument that, they, that they're used to, the structure and terms that they're used to seeing. And we sent them several examples. We sent them prospectus and other documents and say, this is how the banks do it. If you get put something together that's similar to this, we can get outside investors into this product. And that's really what they were looking to do. They were looking to have outside money come into the, the credit union space for this capital. Okay. So if if you could walk me through a use case, I'm a credit union, and we'll just use a million dollars, because I'm sure the numbers are bigger than that typically. But let's say I'm a credit union that wants to issue a million dollars in subordinated debt. This is not, you know, me go find out a bunch of depositors. This is actually me putting an instrument against, well, liability against my my operation, I think. Educate me on that. I'm sure I have that wrong to some degree. But could you, you know, maybe step it back just a little bit and, you know, just to make sure we that the users understand this this concept of subordinated debt? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. As it's basic, it it's a bar, it is a borrowing. So it it's not unlike for credit unions share certificate, which is you know the their version of a CD account, and think of it like a, a five year CD with a stated term. Uh, just the amount deposited is a little more than that average depositor. It has that term, and there's an obligation to to pay that back. So the credit union is borrowing that money for that period of time, and so. The obligation is just to pay it back at, at the stated term and at the stated date, and that's their obligation. The difference and the nuance is the regulator allows that borrowing to count as capital. So it counts 100% towards their net worth ratio for the initial term. In your example, that full million dollars would be added to the capital count of the credit. So I want to unpack a couple things you said there. Let's start with. This concept of, Derek, you run one credit union, I, I run another. You go issue a million dollars in debt, and I need an investment on my side. So, so you know, Charlie's credit union says, hey, I'll, I'll go pick up Derek's, you know, 100% of his debt because, because that fits in my investment portfolio. You know, is there is there sort of an old boys network there where one credit union could go buy the first guy's debt, second one could borrow, take the other ones? And, you know, would there be any benefit there? Or I know you said that this thing was structured so that folks outside the credit union space could buy the debt. 
Mm -hmm. best in the dead, right? Yes. Help me understand that that piece of it, if you could, real quick, and then we'll get on to a couple of the things you just said that I want to talk about. And it's a great lead-in. Well, they're obviously outside investors. You asked about that. Who would buy this? And in our examples, we've we've had insurance companies come in and buy this. We've had bond funds come in and buy this. We've had other banks come in and, and buy this credit union subdebt. And there are other credit unions as part of that investor mix. But as part of the rules, uh, and very specifically stated and, and different from other industries, if a credit union purchases subdebt of any other credit union, they are not permitted to issue. Okay. So you have to be in one camp or the other. The nice part is there's a cure that if at some date in the future you decide that in five years, you know what, I think I could use some of that capital for growth, you simply sell that instrument to another buyer or when it matures, you let it pay off and then you become eligible once again. Okay, great. No, that's that's excellent. I appreciate that. Okay, let me let me ask one question on uh, one more follow up question on what you just what you had mentioned before. You had said, and I'm going to try to quote you, but probably get it wrong. This ruling allowed the sub debt to act as as capital. Think of what you said there. What I tried to say to myself is, okay, right. Every every credit union is always kind of dealing with their capital account and whether or not. You know, capital to assets make make any sense. You're saying that as I look at that sort of capital to assets ratio, this fits on the capital side, very similar to to what? And in, you know, if if I were to correlate that to a bank, right? A bank might do the same thing by just raising capital, right? By by selling stock. Am I thinking about that right, or do I have that completely wrong? No, you do have it right. And and this from if you're doing talking in bank terms, this would count as tier one capital for the bank. And it, it counts as that level, same level of capital towards the net worth of the credit union. As we know in the in the financial services businesses, there's there's regulatory capital and then gap capital. So what the accountants can, you know, how you keep the books and then how the regulators have you account for it. And there's slight adjustments, plus and minuses on either side of that. So to be clear, it, it, it won't count as gap capital, but it does count as tier one capital, not to get too uh, far into it, but for the banks, the subdebt also counts as capital, but it counts as as tier two capital for them uh, in the regulatory calculations. So, really, I think when you said, uh, I think you made a comment to the effect of, you know, this uh, this sort of allows credit unions another opportunity because a credit union can't necessarily raise capital the same way a bank can. The goal of this is, to some degree, is to say, hey, this is just this is another way to raise your capital number without without selling stock, which you really don't have the ability to do. Right? That's that's absolutely correct. And and that is the design of the NCOA board. Former director Rodney Hood was personally involved in the, in the passing of this because he wanted to see a leveling of the playing field. He saw that a lot of the larger credit unions, or really any size above 500 million, they're able to issue, but they couldn't compete with the banks that had other capital instruments to, to issue and count towards capital. So he wanted to give them something, say, okay, I know you can't go public. I know you can't raise, can't sell shares and stock. But if you're a credit union that is looking to grow at something greater than your return on equity or your retained earnings, this is the ability to do so by issuing this subject. We'll be right back. 
If you're dealing with a technology vendor, consider giving Remedy Consulting a call. At Remedy, we're dedicated to helping our clients get the most out of their tech spend. Uh, if you're considering changing one of your major tech providers or are renewing a contract with a vendor, the Remedy team may be able to add some value. Our clients enjoy our deep experience working inside these major vendors, and that background helps us ask questions which eliminate headaches and expense for our clients. Sometimes that's immediate relief you know, in the way of your vendor invoices, and sometimes it comes in the form of contract language protection for a strategic move that you may want to make several years later. The group of experts at Remedy have years of experience in core systems, digital, mobile, payments, item capture, commercial banking, pretty much the whole gamut of technology for financial institutions. Remedy approaches the uh, Bank Talk podcast the same way we approach our client engagements. We always try to fill some knowledge gaps, but also just have enough life experience stories to, to remain entertaining. So if you're renewing a technology contract or you have projects going on, just need another opinion or a project manager from outside your organization, reach out to us at remedyconsult.net. Thank you, and we appreciate you downloading the Bank Talk podcast. Now let's get back to our episode. If you're a mutual bank, and I know there's not quite as many as there used to be in the 70s and 80s, right? But if you're a mutual, meaning you're not held by as a stock bank, do you have the same, don't you, wouldn't you have the same problem? You can't raise capital per se. What would a mutual bank's option be? How does no, a mutual no, I, savings bank sol solve the same problem? Because they're not stock owned, right? Correct. And they, they have the same issue, credit unions do. But we've actually issued a fair amount of sub debt, a tremendous amount of sub debt actually for, for mutual institutions. And what they have in their advantage is they have the ability to create a holding company. Credit unions don't have holding companies, but banks can. Okay. And what they'll do is they issue that sub debt out of the holding company, then downstream that debt to the bank as tier one capital, thereby getting that same treatment. So in other words, mutuals have availed themselves of the same product. They just have to go through an extra step of establishing a holding company to do so. Okay. And they treat it as a pass-through of some sort. Yeah. Correct. And, and to be clear, that's a non-public mutual holding company. Right. So okay. the other option would be to go public and issue shares, but if they want to stay in the mutual form, then they go through the, that extra step, establishing the whole company, raising debt and downstreaming it, and in effect have it look very similar to uh, what we just described as, as a credit union net worth uh, ratio, uh, counting that capital. Okay. And the difference is that the credit unions just got this opened up to them in 2022, where this might not even, even in the mutual space, this might not have been a well-attended session because they've already known about it and have been doing it for years. Is that is that a fair statement? No, that, that's correct. We, we've been issuing, and in fact, for some mutuals, we've done three rounds of it already. Typically, you asked about structure earlier. Typically, this has a 10-year a life, but a, a five-year structure in which it can be repaid or refinanced. So we have some that have already gone through the five years refinance and, and issued additional. So oh, uh, it is a much is a more mature market. That's a, that's very interesting. Okay, so the, the the next question I have for you is: there was an argument made in this conversation that I was listening to, and again, some of this was going over my head when I was listening to the subordinated debt presentation. But there was an argument made 
that if you take in X number of dollars, call it a million dollars in debt, subordinated debt, that you would you could potentially, as a credit union CEO, leverage that into a lot more loans. And I'm going to again paraphrase, but a lot more loans on the on the other side of the books. In other words, you know, one million might become eight million, or five million, or four million, or something along those lines. Could you explain that dynamic? Like, what what's the concept there? You know, what's that leverage mean in, in, to to the common man? Yeah, and and that's very simple. I mean, it, the financial services uni- yeah, universe is built on leverage. I mean, banks have the same thing. They have a dollar of capital, and if they only lent out that dollar, then there would be leverage would be one for one. Now, the ability and and of institutions to lend out something greater than that. So, on instead of lending out just one million dollars on the proceeds, they're able to lend out five million dollars to in credit union membership. So you take one million, turn into five million of loans, and as you think about a capital ratio, one you know, one million of capital over five million of assets, that's a twenty percent capital ratio or net worth ratio. So that's very well capitalized. So you're not over levering. You know, when once you get beyond ten times that same million dollars, making ten million dollars of loans, that'd be a ten percent leverage yeah. ratio and you're starting to and that's really about the level of exactly so the, and so that that's what the institutions will look to do they'll look to leverage the capital the important distinction of the debt that's that some people don't get it originally this is not it's not financing or borrowing because if you were just to say well i need to borrow money to fund these loans you would just go out and raise cds or borrow money from the home loan bank it, it's something much cheaper than what the yield of this debt is the fact that the debt counts as capital is, is the real key uh, to why folks should look at this as a potential alternative for their for their growth plans. So is it fair to say that if the if the debt is costing you, I'll use a number, 5% in interest, and you can make five loans at 5% in interest, the value of the leverage is that you're actually making more than you're paying out the backside. And and it is because of that leverage. Like like in other words, even if the debt would cost you eight percent, after leveraging it four or five times over, the income stream from that higher level of borrowing greatly offsets the dollar amount that that you're paying out the back door. I think you're exactly correct the way you described that. And and when we run our break-even analysis, it's anywhere from two and a half to five times of leverage is that break-even point. So to the extent you lever more than that, you are generating income above and beyond what you would have done had you not gone through that process. Okay. Because my other option, if I, if I think about it, if I'm a credit union, I'm, you know, I'm the CEO of a credit union, is to go borrow some money from the federal home loan bank at 3% and hope to get 6% when I lend it out. And that's not nearly the leverage of something like this. Correct. That's a one for one. You're That's funding. You're going to fund funding. that in that 3% spread, but you need capital to support that. And that's what this that's what this borrowing does. It's the capital support that growth. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So it so it both it both allows you to borrow up to you know higher limits, and you also have this value of the leverage that goes along with it. That's right. No, that's helpful. Like I said, I, I you know I, this is not my necessarily my area of expertise, but it, it you know, it's sort of fascinating to me when you when you look at the dynamics around it and why. Again, I I was in my head I was trying to determine why this thing would be well attended. 
And I'm, I'm getting my head around to it, specifically that probably that January 2022 date that you talked about earlier. Yeah. And, and the folks we're talking to that are issuing this, it, you know, they come to us and it is a growth story. They say we have opportunity to lend. We have opportunity to expand our membership. But if we do that, we're going to go below X percent net worth. And our board and our management has a certain comfort level. And that that level is different for everyone. For some, it's for some, it's eight percent. For some, it's nine. For some, it's eleven. And they say, well, we just operate with a, a leverage ratio in mind. And if we want to grow ahead of that, we're going to need to bring in extra capital to meet the meet that extra demand we're seeing. And and it's in markets. I mean, it's it's a tough market out there. Well, seeing the growth is not what it was and in 19 or 2019 or 2020, but there are spots around the country and other institutions are seeing opportunities to pick up share and market share and, and loans, and they want to take advantage of it. That's great. No, that's excellent. Okay. I think I only have one more question for you. And, and that question is this, if there's got to be a sweet spot for this, like, I think I heard you say, and maybe not so many words that you've got to issue a certain amount of this debt and you have a certain time period, and you very likely have some higher expenses to issue this than you would uh, other scenarios. Like, at what point do you think of, hey, it's not even worth bothering unless I'm issuing thirty million bucks? Or is it, you know, is there a number there that, you know, if you're a CEO of a credit union listening to this, and based on your size, et cetera, is there a number upon, you know, below which it doesn't make any sense to even look at this? No, I do think it's all relative to the size and what you can do with it. The NTA rule says anyone above 500 million can issue. And if they can put that money to work and show that there is an application process, show the NTA we have a plan for this and they're approved, then it, it does make sense. Okay. But they have to and be 500 to million in assets in order to even get into the game. So right. there's, there, there's actually two, re- yeah, two requirements the 500 million in assets, and they also have to be a low income designated, that's an important thing maybe upfront, but I think all the, all the credit unions listening will, will know what that means. They have to be low income designated upfront in order to uh, apply and be approved uh, for this. Oh, so, right. uh, but there are uh, out of the universe, it's, it's those that are low income designated, you know, are, are in the thousands. So we're not talking about a very small amount of the credit union universe. We're talking about a pretty good one because Credit unions were designed to serve the underserved, so they're already in the membership base. Okay, no, that's excellent. Is there a downside to the issuing this debt? Uh, uh, you know, from either a risk perspective or a and or maybe maybe I should ask that question a little differently. Is there a downside to to buying this debt and making sure you're getting paid back at some point? Yeah, there's two sides to the coin, and I, I think that's that's just it. If you're if you're looking to invest in it, you got to look at it the same way that you would look at making any loan to a to a member to a or to a business uh, that is a non-member loan. You know what is the ability, what's the credit of that underlying institution, and and will they pay it back? For some, they look at it, and some of the ones that issued have been top-rated, top-performing institutions in the credit union universe, and they say, well, <laughs> well I'd love to own that. I'd rather make that loan than a residential loan, and it's paying me X percent more than that loan pays. And so it, it gives them a nice return on what they feel is a better credit. Now, there's credit up and down the spectrum, and you want to look closely at someone that has a very low return on average assets, 
and say, okay, can they, do they have the ability to, to debt service this? And, and that's just the credit analysis that I think every, every institution should do as they go about it. And the same time from an, from an issuer. They should go through the same thing and say, this is going to be our debt service. This is how much we're going to cost of carrying this. Can we afford this for the next five years? And how are we going to pay it back? Right. So from both ends, uh, they should be doing that analysis and that calculus and making sure that they can afford it. Okay. No, and that's great. I think, I think you know, just as, just as guidance to a board of directors, because a board of directors may or may not, within the credit union space, may or may not be heavily into the financial side of this, but the concept of, of debt service is pretty important or at least asking the right questions there, right? Great. I, I think I covered everything that I wanted to cover, Derek. Is, was there anything else you think we need to talk about in this space? No, I think I, the folks that remain, it's pretty simple. We do a lot of education on, on this product to help folks get familiar with it. But the fact is, as an institution, credit unions are, are borrowing every day. Uh, they're, they're borrowing money from the home loan bank or they're borrowing from their members. This is just a another means of doing so, but it happens to count as capital. I think that's that's really bring, boiling it down to simplicity, you know, so a couple of simplistic uh, terms. That's, that's what you want to keep in mind. Okay, excellent. All right, well, well, Derek, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on Bank Talk, and it's been very informative. Like I said, it, it, you, you certainly filled in some blanks that I, I couldn't get my head around to prior to our conversation, so hopefully you've got the same thing, you know, the Listeners will feel the same way. So uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you again. So that's it for Bank Talk. I appreciate everybody spending a little bit of time with us. Have a good day and keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast brought to you by Remedy Consulting. To reach out to Derek at Piper Sandler, go to pipersandler.com or see the show notes for his email address. Thanks again, and we will see you in the next episode.